Welcome to the Curdverse. I'm Lisa Kaywood, corporate functionary by day, home cheesemaker by night. Today we get into cheese typology. And the first thing to say is, there is actually no universal standard system for classifying cheeses. Some of that is cultural. So for example, in English-speaking countries, we usually organize cheeses by what it's like to eat them. In France, they talk about cheeses in terms of how they're made. So just in case you weren't totally clear on how deeply cheesemaking is embedded in the French cultural psyche, now you know. So the big breakdowns in French typologies, typically cooked versus uncooked and pressed versus unpressed. I talked a bit about that in episode two. In English-speaking countries, most of the time we start with texture on a scale from soft to hard. And then sometimes we'll talk about the rind, a bloomy rind or a natural rind or a washed rind. And honestly, that texture scale is a pretty good proxy for how to organize a good cheese tray because it tends to correspond with the age and flavor intensity of the different cheeses. Since a lot of people seem to have anxieties about the whole subject of cheese selection and cheese trays, let's start there. First stop, the fresh cheeses. They're straightforward, easy to make, uncomplicated in flavor, ready in hours or at most a few days. And because they're fresh, the sugars, fats, and proteins haven't had time to break down and provide secondary complex flavors and aromas. So they're the cheeses that taste the most like fresh milk. Many of them are soft and spreadable, so they make great breakfast cheeses. They're less fatty than cream cheese and often have a bit more flavor. They're also great for hors d'oeuvres. So within the general category of fresh cheeses, there are two basic kinds, direct acid or acid heat cheeses and cultured cheeses. I talked a bit about heat acid cheeses in the first two episodes. These are the ones that are made by heating up milk to steaming, adding some vinegar or lemon juice, and then draining and salting the curds. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that because sometimes the acid people use is in fact a lactic acid by adding yogurt or buttermilk to fresh milk instead of the vinegar or lemon juice. But it's not left to ferment the fresh milk for any length of time. It's the combo of the heat and the acid that snaps the milk solids out of solution. So a classic example of this type is ricotta or other kinds of pot cheeses. Ricotta literally means recooked in Italian, and it's traditionally made from the whey left over from making rennet cheeses. So it's kind of a bonus cheese after the main event. But virtually any ricotta you buy from a store is made from milk rather than whey. These cheeses are very often used in cooked dishes as protein fillings. So in lasagna, in ravioli, other soft dumplings, in piroschi, you can even turn them into dumplings. Mix in some flour and an egg and you're halfway to a plate of fresh ricotta gnocchi. So other cheeses in the heat acid category include cream cheeses like mascarpone and other cream cheese like you would spread on a bagel. This one, of course, are made from cream rather than milk. Indian paneer is another heat acid cheese. This one is drained and pressed. The other group of fresh cheeses use cultures to thicken the milk and to start separating it from the whey. So chevre is a classic example of these types of fresh cheeses, as are many Latin American cheeses like queso blanco or queso fresco. While most of these cheeses will keep for a couple of weeks in the fridge, usually they don't last much beyond that, at least not without growing molds and not necessarily the kinds of molds you might want. 
That's because they've got lots and lots of moisture in them, and more moisture means more rapid spoilage. But that's also what makes many of them soft and spreadable. And because they're so young, they've still got some residual lactose in them, which gives them that sweet, milky flavor. The traditional alternative is to store fresh cheeses in brine, like feta or halloumi, or salt them heavily, like Mexican cotija, or Italian ricotta salata, or salted ricotta, which is a sliceable table cheese. You can sometimes find ricotta salata in Italian markets, but it's also really easy to make yourself. Like the other cheeses, it's got some residual sweetness from the milk, but it's also salty. So it's great as a little nibble with some olives and crackers on the patio on a warm day. The next phylum in our tour of the cheese kingdom would be the pasta filata category. Pasta filata means stretched curd. So this is another set of very mild cheeses that are typically eaten young. The curds are pulled, like taffy, after they're made, which draws the caseins, which are the proteins that create the majority of the structure of the cheese, into parallel alignments. The resulting cheese is both stretchy and melty, like mozzarella, your favorite pizza cheese, and that lunchbox staple, string cheese, and the fan favorite for caprese salad, burrata. Now, you'll notice that the ones that are most familiar to us in North America have Italian names, but there are variations found all around the Aegean, from Greece to the Balkans, reaching up into Romania and Hungary, to Turkey and Syria. And it's possible that they actually originated in the East and made their way west with Greek colonists in the late Bronze Age. In the Aegean world, they tend to be made with sheep milk or some mix of sheep, goat, and cow, but in Italy, they're primarily cow milk cheeses. So in addition to those fresh pasta filata cheeses, there is also a set of pasta filata cheeses that are pressed, stretched, and then aged for a few months. Sometimes they're smoked too. So in Greece and the Balkans, there's a category of cheeses called caseri. It comes from the same root word as casein, the protein that, that creates cheese. They also have another set of cheeses called cascavali, and it has a cousin in Italy called cacciocavallo. Caccio, again, comes from casein. And of course, provolone, that favorite for sandwiches. All right, moving on to another phylum, let's look at the lactic set cheeses. These are really just fresh cheeses that have drained and aged a bit more, usually two to four weeks. Many of them are small goat cheeses, not because you can't make lactic set cheeses with other milk like cow milk. It's just that cow milk in particular is pretty bland and lactic cow cheeses just aren't that flavorful. On the other hand, that trademark tang of goat milk comes from an acid which starts breaking down and mellowing out after a couple of weeks. So if you're not a fan of the goatiness of Chevre, you may find these cheeses to be a bit more to your liking. So these are actually some of the easiest cheeses to make. They're your classic set and forget it food. You literally just add some cultures to milk that's around 85 or 90 Fahrenheit, which is 29 to 32 Celsius, and then it, let it sit in a warm place for 12, 18, 24 hours until it's thickened to about the consistency of yogurt. You can easily imagine that back in the old days, that's exactly what your average farmsteader who had a goat or two did after the morning milking. You just leave it in a bucket, covered with a cloth, maybe near the hearth, and go about the rest of the day's chores. And then once it's thickened, you spoon the curd into either a big cloth sack or some small molds, and let it drain for several hours, maybe even a day or two. This does mean they're fairly tangy cheeses, because the acid is allowed to develop in the cheese for a really long time before they're salted. 
These types of cheeses are really common in the Loire Valley in France and all across the south of France. In France, they're often made with raw or unpasteurized milk, but because the USDA requires raw milk cheeses to be aged for at least 60 days, that means that many of these cheeses can't be imported to the U.S. But good news! Because of the growing popularity of goat cheeses in general, many American creameries are starting to make these types of cheeses with pasteurized milk. So the fun thing about lactic set cheeses is that after that initial brain-dead simple step of leaving the cultured milk alone for the day to do its thing, there's some art and creativity that comes into it. And this is where you get all the wonderful different variations in, in lactic set goat cheeses. So you have to decide how long to let it drain and when and how much to salt it. Those choices will lead the cheese in a bunch of different directions. In cooler, damper places like the Loire Valley, they might be allowed to develop a light, fuzzy white coat of geotrichum mold. That's one of the molds that you also find on things like brie. In drier regions, some are aged for a month or so until they're dry enough to grate over salad or a meat dish. But because most of these cheeses are still young and impressionable, they absorb external influences fairly well. So they're a great vehicle for showing off a cheesemaker's creativity. Sometimes after they're drained, they're wrapped in alcohol-soaked leaves from various fruit or nut trees, or they're coated in ash, or they're rolled in herbs or chopped dried fruit or even fresh flowers, or they're stored in oil. The possibilities are nearly endless. I'll have a whole episode later on about all the varieties of these different lactic set cheeses because there are way too many to talk about here on our initial tour. For now, let's just say they're a great first stop on a good cheese board especially served with some ripe pears. All right, now let's wallow a bit. I'm talking gooey, white fuzz-coated cheeses, double and triple creams. Your mouth's already watering, isn't it? Welcome, my friends, to the Bloomy Rinds. These are really the first cheeses on our tour that even have rinds, you may be noticing. It takes a week or two to develop a rind, and the bigger the cheese, the longer it takes before you have a good stable one. So let's talk about rinds for a minute. The rind on a cheese is kind of like your skin. It serves as a protective barrier against unwanted things in the surrounding environment so that the interior of the cheese, or the paste, stays clean. It provides a nice contained environment in which the remaining live cultures in the curd can go about their business consuming and breaking down the sugars and the fats and the proteins in the curd, mostly without interference. Now I say mostly because the rind is porous and it breathes, just like your skin. The moisture in a young cheese over time will evaporate out through the rind, and the gases given off as part of the digestive process of some cultures will also exude through the rind as well. But things also go in the other direction. So what lives on the surface of the rind can subtly and slowly influence the flavor and texture of the paste too, in the same way that the leaves and the ash and the oil that lactic set cheeses sometimes age in do. And that's why the rind is really important in Bloomy Rinds. The mold which blooms, that's why it's called a Bloomy Rind, the mold which blooms on the surface of the cheese progressively eats its way into the cheese, breaking down the protein structures as it goes. So this is why Bloomy Rinds are sometimes called surface ripened cheeses. Even more so than most other cheeses, they age from the outside in. And because they age from the outside in, they're usually pretty flat, maybe an inch or two or three centimeters tall. So you have a pretty high rind to paste ratio. So there are lots of mold spores relative to the amount of paste that needs to be broken down. Okay, 
So that took some of the romance out of it, right? Talking about mold. But just like there are good guy microbial cultures and bad guy cultures, like I talked about in episode two, there are good yeasts and molds and not so good molds. And the game on the rind is just like the game in the milk. You want to manipulate the conditions that your young cheese is living in so that the good guys populate the surface faster than the bad guys and help give your cheese the flavors and textures that you want. So in Bloomy Rind Cheese, the two big molds, the things that cause that fuzzy white rind, are Geotrichum and Penicillium candidum. Yes, that Penicillium candidum is a cousin of our favorite overused antibiotic, penicillin, and it also has some antimicrobial properties. So these are the good guys. A Bloomy Rind may have one or the other, or both, in its rind. In modern cheesemaking, dried mold spores are usually added to the milk along with the dried cultures. And then when the cheese is placed in a very moist, cool environment, those spores start to sprout. Honestly, it's kind of like watching a chia pet grow in. So over several days, you'll go from having just this nice, fresh, young cheese in your cave to a sleek, white-furred beast. And then from there, it'll typically be another three to four weeks of letting those molds mouth through the curd. And then you've got a brie or a camembert or a brie savarin. I'll talk more about these cheeses in another episode as well. But for now, just remember that because these cheeses sometimes have a lot of fat and very little acid, you want to pair these guys with something like a crisp green apple or maybe a half flute of a brut champagne. Alright, so now we get to what the French might call pressed cheeses, and English speakers will usually call semi-firm, firm, or hard cheeses. We also divide them by rind types. These are cheeses that can be aged anywhere from a couple of months to two to four years, and it's that aging process that gives them character. They become what they are due to ongoing interactions with their environments as they age, again because those rinds are porous. They also tend to be more complicated to make because we pull all kinds of levers to give them the exact right level of acidity and moisture. And then we send them off on a long and kind of lonely journey to adulthood, wherein all the cultures and yeasts and molds in and around them battle it out to break down the fats and proteins in the curd over time. And that's what shapes the cheese's flavor and texture. So these can be semi-firm cheeses like Jack, Cheddar, Gouda, the slightly harder Alpine cheeses like Gruyere, Emmentaler, Comte, and then also from the Pyrenees, Manchego and Iberico. They can be washed rinds like Morbier, and really hard cheeses like a Pecorino or a Parmesan. As you peruse cheese counters, you'll probably start to notice that they're sometimes organized by the types of cheese that we've been going through, and sometimes by nationality. And the nationality part is particularly strong when it comes to pressed cheeses. Because how you need to treat a cheese that's going to age for a long time really depends on the climate it's aging in. So there are very different national styles when it comes to the harder cheeses. One thing that they typically have in common is robustness and complexity of flavor. The English cheeses tend to be fairly high acid, so you'll want to pair them with something like a sweeter apple or dried fruits. The mountain cheeses are typically sweeter, sometimes a bit nutty, and they really go well with a variety of fresh and dried fruits and toasted nuts. The funky washed rinds call for some pretty bold counterparts, like dried figs or a hearty red wine. And the really hard dry cheeses, which are piquant, but not always really strong in flavor, do well with a dab of honey. So our final category, the last stop on our tour, is always going to be the blues. 
which kind of blows that whole soft to hard organizing scheme out of the water because they're neither very hard nor very old. But they are very strongly flavored, so they're always the last thing you eat on a cheese board because honestly after them you're unlikely to taste much of anything else. Blues are blue because they can involve with another strain of penicillium, Penicillium roqueforti. Yep, it gets its name from the Roquefort blue cheese, a sheep cheese from southwest France. But of course you'll find blue cheeses all over, Italian gorgonzola, English stilton, and a variety of other lesser-known blues from around the European continent. Blue or blue-green molds will happily grow almost anywhere with enough moisture. You may even find you get spots of blue mold growing on cheeses, and also breads, that aren't supposed to be blue, depending on how you keep your cheese and bread. But blue cheeses are made in a rather unusual way, which in most cases involves piercing the rind and letting air, with its ambient yeasts and molds, into the inside of the cheese. Yet again, there will be a whole episode on that on its own. For now, let's just think about eating them. With some dark chocolate, cherries, a dessert wine like porter sherry. That completes our tour of European cheese typology. With that basic guide in hand, spend some time at the cheese counter. I'll spend the next episode talking about options that might work for you if you have some issues with dairy. So please join me again next time as we once again enter the curdverse. Mm-hmm.